Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year? No, I haven't, like, lost it. I know it's not January 1st, but for the church, it is the new year. Today begins the Christian liturgical year. It's the first Sunday of Advent. Notice the colors have changed. We're no longer in green. We're now in purple. If you will notice as we go through the liturgy today, words are a little bit different. Just hang tight. We'll be fine. But I greatly appreciate that the Christian calendar begins in this season in late November or early December, depending on what year it is. The calendar is a constant reminder that we, the church, operate on a different system than that of the world. We have our own calendar, the liturgical calendar. We have our own king. His name is Jesus. We have our own citizenship, a heavenly one. And we even as Christians have our own language. But let me tell you, as Anglicans, we have our own language. We have a narthex in the back. We have a nave. We have a chancel. If I sent you to the sacristy to grab a pad and to bring out for the altar, along with the veil and verse, people are like, what in the world are you talking about? And if you need an interpretation for the tongue in which I just spoke, feel free to ask me later or talk to one of the ladies on the altar guild. They can explain it all to you. We have our own unique way of life. And this also means, though, that the world, the people who are outside the church, also have their own way of life. The church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, are engaged in conflict simply by the fact that we have a different world system than everybody else does. But this conflict with the culture is not the culture war that people talk about all the time. People talk about culture wars and how people are trying to X Christ out of Christmas. Well, let me tell you, hang tight in a few weeks once we actually get to Christmas, you will see me with the post saying to keep the Kai in Christmas because early Christians used abbreviations too. Why? Because what people normally call the X and Xmas is actually just an abbreviation because the first letter of Jesus' name, like title, Christ, Christos, is actually that letter. So, just for the record, folks, keep the Kai in Christmas this year. One of the things that you will notice is we, we talk about culture wars all the time, but the culture war in which the church has to engage is in not conforming to the ways and means of the world in taking a stand for righteousness. That's the tough part for us. And sadly, the church in this country has done a poor job of judging situations and has made attempts to achieve godly goals through ungodly means. Thankfully, Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead, will come and judge all things rightly. 
as our Old Testament lesson reveals. The final chapter from the writing of the prophet Zechariah speaks of the coming of the Lord in terms of war. Listen to the first two verses of chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. When you read this passage, something stands out. The first thing that stands out to me within these first two verses is that Zechariah's prophecy does not portray the people of God exercising any power over their enemies. The people of God do nothing in these first two verses. Think about it for a moment. Their spoil is taken. It's divided in front of them. The people gather against Jerusalem to battle. Their city is taken. Their houses are plundered. Their women are raped. And they're taken into exile. They exercise no power or authority in the midst of this. And undoubtedly, some of you are wondering what you were supposed to do then. Father Dan, if the world is attacking us, what do we do? I think that the New Testament gives us a clue. Acts chapter 5, verse 21, has Luke explaining, Then the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I'm going to read that one more time. The apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is the name of Jesus. And oddly within our tradition, we often pray for those who are persecuted for their faith. But when we pray for those who are persecuted for their faith, the prayers I often hear when they go into detail is asking God to grant them perseverance to endure. We ask that God would strengthen them to go through what they're going through. We ask for their persecutors to see their willingness to endure and come to know the Lord. That's what we pray when they are persecuted. But what about when we experience persecution. What do we pray then? And let me be clear, I'm talking about persecution, not opposition. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. I once had a college student walk up to me, and he was at a public university, and he said, my professor marked my grade down, and I got a D on this paper because I wrote it from a Christian perspective. I read the paper. And when I read the paper, I said, wait, what did your teacher give you on this paper? I said, a D. I said, oh, they were gracious. I would have given you an F. I said, here's why. Your teacher didn't mark you down because you wrote a paper from a Christian perspective. Your teacher marked you down because you didn't write a good paper. 
They thanked me later, but in that moment, they had no thanks for me. We have to make sure that if we're going to say such things are taking place because of our faith, that we are actually living up to our faith and doing what we should be doing. So notice, I'm not talking about opposition. I'm talking about persecution. And in the face of opposition, though, within this country, I have seen believers in our cultural context pray for the power to crush their enemies in the name of the Lord. I'm quickly reminded of the words of the author of Hebrews who stated, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And even if it means shedding your blood, such approaches should not be for the people of God. Now, this might go against all your cultural instincts and sensibilities. And if that is the case for you, I would dare say it ultimately reveals that you are shaped by and have conformed to the secular culture far more than you have been shaped by and have conformed to the gospel of Christ and his kingdom. In other words, while you confess with your mouth, your instincts and sometimes your actions may raise question of whether you believe in your heart. We look back at the history of the church and we talk about the martyr's blood as seed, but for some reason, we don't seem to trust God in the shedding of our blood. Now, I know that Advent is a time of reflection, but it is also, especially on this first Sunday, a day of hope. So I'm going to bring you some hope from these passages right here, okay? Just hang tight with me. Because beginning in verse 3, we learn that God does not abandon his people. Even when things do not go how we might desire, we are not left to our own devices. The judge of the world will act in justice even when our justice systems fail. God will act on behalf of his people. Even though the spoil has been taken and divided, even though houses have been plundered, women have been raped, and families have been separated due to exile, the word of the Lord declares, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. But I emphasize that again. I want you to catch this. As when he fights on a day of battle. Notice this. You are not fighting. God never called you to take up arms in the name of Jesus. I think actually Jesus said something about if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Just saying. The Lord will be your refuge. The prophecy continues. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies, between, that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord will come and all the holy ones with him. 
in this text, the people of God finally do something. They flee. They flee to God for safety. They have undoubtedly been victims of the enemy, but the people run to God for safety. So if you need to know what to do when you are attacked by the world, you follow the principles of this prophecy. God will fight the battle. Your job is to run to him. So I know over the past number of times when I have been preaching, you all have heard me say repeatedly, but I think it's very important for you to understand that we live in this period of the already but not yet. Christ has won the victory, but we are waiting for the consummation of the coming of his kingdom. And it's at that point we will see the fulfillment of our prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are in the kingdom, but sometimes we don't behave like we are. Sometimes we fall into the habit of worldly sinful actions. But the day of the Lord is a day when sin shall cease. And why do I say that? Because in this text, we see that the day of the Lord is a time when the curse of sin shall be no more. When the Lord comes, we find the ultimate fulfillment of his promise. John picks up on the imagery of Zechariah 2 at the end of Revelation chapter 21. Zechariah said, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Revelation chapter 21 concludes saying, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Moving back to our text today of Zechariah 14, Zechariah says, On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Now, this is not the only marker of the day of the Lord. When the Lord comes, he will bring healing with him. Zechariah explains, on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Now, John once again picks up on this idea. At the end of Revelation, the throne of God is in the midst of the new Jerusalem. And chapter 22 picks up by saying, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, for the longest time when reading that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, I wondered why there would be a need for healing in the age to come. And I believe that part of that is because of the fact that we will need healing because of the hurt that we have experienced in this age from the world. And not only that, but I think that there will be a need for healing from the hurts that we experience from those inside the church who have behaved like the world. But when the Lord comes, he will bring healing in his wings and bring restoration to us all. When the Lord comes, he will be king over all the earth. Notice, we do not make him king by our actions. He is king. Jesus is already enthroned in majesty on high, and we come to see the reality of Christ's kingship when he comes again. Even as the text says, on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And this recalls for me so powerfully the words of Deuteronomy in chapter 6, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That passage continues saying, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And as we know, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So coming as judge and king over all the earth, Christ will judge with righteousness and justice. Will he find you behaving like the world, actively engaged in the midst of a so-called culture war? Or will he find you as a citizen of his kingdom, as one who does not utilize ungodly means to try to achieve godly goals, but as one who is faithful to him and finds it an honor to suffer for his name. When he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, may he find us faithful. And may we, because of that, rise to life immortal in his everlasting kingdom. Amen.